0: Now hear God's Holy Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, continuing our study in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian Church. Hear now God's Holy Word. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name, yes? I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for preserving uh, these letters of Paul to the churches as you have inspired him and moved him by your Holy Spirit. So now move upon us now to receive them, to think with clarity, open our hearts to receive these truths, and open my mouth to proclaim them boldly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's no fun getting that telephone call, but we've all gotten it in our lives. Hi, it's me. We've got a problem we've got a big problem. That's, that's not a great way to begin a phone conversation. You know that, that trouble is headed your way. You never wanna hear that, man, when you're at work and you get a call from home in the middle of the day and your wife says, how's your day going? And, and you hear in the background sirens and helicopters and crying, you know, a fire truck somewhere back there. I actually did that to my wife one time when Bailey was not yet a year old. I started a phone conversation uh, I I was watching Bailey at home. Sarah was grocery shopping, and I said, uh, I I don't think it needs stitches, but there's a lot of blood. That's how I started the phone conversation. (laughs) And, of course, she dropped her groceries and came home. And, uh, and, no, it didn't need stitches, but I, uh, at home with a little baby who just busted her chin, you know, I start that phone call that way to my wife. At any rate, when when there's trouble like that, when there's a crisis and you have to call for help, or you're trying to address trouble, you quickly dispense with the pleasantries. You don't talk about the weather. You don't talk about what you're having for supper that night. You get right down to business when there's trouble. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, look, we've got a problem. And that's the kind of letter that Paul writes to the church (laughs) at Corinth. Dear Corinth, this is Paul. I love you. Jesus loves you. We've got big trouble. We've got big problems. There are some things we have to talk about. Remember what prompted this letter was some correspondence between Paul and this church. There was a previous letter that Paul had written to them addressing some matters. That letter has not been preserved for us. We don't have that one, though he refers to it. But the church responds to that letter with some more questions. And now Paul sends Timothy on ahead to help while he writes this letter. There's a great deal of trouble brewing in Corinth, and as a Christian who's read the Bible, you know what some of those issues are. And now put yourself in Paul's shoes and know all that's going on in the church at Corinth. It would be difficult for you to determine what to address first. Where do we start? What is at the heart of their trouble? Why are they so defective? Why is the atmosphere so thick with toxicity? Why, why aren't they getting along? Why aren't they pursuing holiness? Why aren't they walking in wisdom? Well, so uh, sin has a way of crossing issues up and get, getting things tangled and knotted. So it's never a matter of just solving one problem. I wish it were as simple as just solving a, a, a mathematical you know, problem sometimes where you just, you just pull it apart and you solve this little piece. But but sin has a way of, of working itself in. And so a solution is, is a matter of a lot of change happening in a lot of different areas at the same time. There's never just one easy fix apart from absolute humility across the board with everybody involved and total submission to the Lord Jesus Christ by everyone. That's, that would solve a lot of issues, but, but we have to get to that point. We have to, we have to show that there's a need for that. And so Paul has to start somewhere, and it appears that one of their most open, egregious errors is their disunity. We can work out anything so long as we determine that we're on the same team, that we're actually invested in each other, and as long as we have some mutual interest in each other's holiness and spiritual health. If, on the other hand, we decide that we're just going to be territorial and partisan, we're going to play schoolyard games about who's friends with whom, if we're going to be nitpicky and petty and belligerent over our disagreements, well, we don't have a lot to work with. There's going to be very little growth. Maturity is not going to take place in the body. Very little good is going to be able to, to take root between us. So, given all of the issues that we know are present in the church at Corinth, Paul picks out this one first, and that is disunity. The subject of unity is the first topic that Paul addresses in this letter to the Corinthians, and he keeps coming back to it. He'll keep addressing it several times, hitting it from from many different angles. Because the church in Corinth has a bad reputation right now, and over all things, they have a, have a reputation not as a church that has sweet fellowship or hospitality or, or great service or great doctrinal integrity. The church at Corinth has a reputation as a church that is deeply divided. That is her reputation. They are at each other's throats over a number of issues. And where there should be harmony, there is only cacophony, lots of voices, each trying to be louder than all the others. They've they've drawn battle lines in all kinds of unnecessary places, between Jew and Gentile, between rich and poor, between those who have witnessed and participated in certain manifestations of spiritual gifts and those who have not, those with a young, tender conscience and those with a mature conscience. But, But here's the tricky part, that On the surface, they have their differences categorized not along lines of preference or experience or opinion, but everything has been elevated to a theological argument. There's this odd phenomenon among Christians, and particularly uh, Reformed Christians, where we we have to acknowledge that there's this kind of uh, cussedness. There's this kind of um, contentiousness. Uh, kind of feistiness where we can turn any matter of preference or even some slight offense into a dense theological matter. Watch me. I can I can change a conversation on lunch meat preferences into a theological uh, debate. You're, yeah, oh, I see you like salami. Well, I've got the baloney, right? You know, I, do you know the theological history of salami? Do you understand what's going into that? Do you, do you know the background there? And not only that, do you know the trajectories of people who eat salami? They always end up in Rome. Every single one of them who eats salami ends up in Rome. And, and that's, how we, that's how we do it. And I'm being ridiculous there, but you you've seen it and you know what I'm talking about. If you and I disagree about something, no matter how big or small, I can turn it into this very weighty theological issue where I'm on the right side and you're on the radical side and then as long as I'm on the right side and as long as you're a heretic, then I don't have to forgive you as quickly and I don't have to listen to your viewpoint because you're obviously a heretic trying to lead people astray. I can talk about you rather than to you because, because you wouldn't listen to me anyway, you heretic. And you know that how these heretics are, right? And I can pretty much justify anything I want to do to you and act however I want to act towards you under the banner of theological purity. I can justify to myself my mistreatment of you because I have the best theological hygiene here and you, you don't. You see, that's and, and you've seen it happen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We elevate opinions and preferences and differences into theological division. And we quickly get very sectarian. And it seems that the Corinthian church with all their divisions over day-to-day issues, which were real differences, they had some real differences, but they had elevated those differences and separated into various theological camps. Some called themselves Paul's followers. Others called themselves the followers of Apollos. Others said that they were in Peter's camp. And some very pious souls said that they were in Jesus' corner. It's easy to see why some wanted to be identified with Paul and were eager to be. I mean, if you're in Corinth, you want to be identified with Paul, right? He started the church. He's our father in the faith. He labored among us in the early days, the tough days, when we were in the storefront next to the synagogue or we were in the house of justice, right? We were, we, we, he was with us in those days. But as you recall, you know, Paul wasn't the only preacher who had been there in Corinth. He did stay for a long time, uh, over a year and a half. But after that, he left, and, and uh, a few days later came this wonderful, charismatic, articulate, skilled young man named Apollos. Now, Apollos must have been a really brilliant scholar with a real gift for teaching. He grew up in Alexandria of Egypt, which was a center of, of learning, where the great Jewish philosopher Philo had lived. And I'm sure that there were many in Corinth while they thought, well, Paul was okay, Paul was great, but I really really prefer the teaching of Apollos. I I really like him better, as well as his style and his haircut and his methods of ministry. I mean, I just really like the guy. It's natural to make comparisons when one teacher replaces another, or you get a new manager at work, or or when one pastor leaves and another comes, you're going to compare and contrast because no two people are granted the exact same gifts in the exact same degrees to the exact same dimensions. That's, That's normal. The problem came when preference passed into rivalry and division. Interestingly, Apollos was not in Corinth when Paul writes this letter. Uh, later in 1 Corinthians, he's, he, uh, he says that he urged Apollos to visit Corinth again, which means he's not there right now. So both those who are following Paul and those who are following uh, uh, Apollos, and and incidentally, uh, we we haven't talked about Peter yet, those who are following Peter and Jesus, they're all following and they're all following. Uh, uh, associating themselves with people who aren't there. They're all associating themselves with people who are not their present elders or pastor. Like uh, these celebrity cults that grow up around TV preachers or, or personalities on the internet or, you know, uh, bloggers or, or writers or these, these, these celebrity cults that, that populate themselves around Christian personalities. There, there is this attraction to the writing and the speaking and teaching of a pastor who doesn't know your name, who doesn't know your children's names. I, I like that guy because he never talks about my problems. He talks about everybody else's, but he doesn't even know who I am. So I'm attracted to him. He's never going to confront me. That's why, that's why it's so easy to have this, this Gnostic relationship with a, a celebrity pastor that you see on TV or hear on the radio. And, and so Apollos isn't there. Paul isn't there. And yet there are still these camps who are um, attracted to them. Well, some people in the church said that they were uh, they belonged to Cephas. Cephas is, you know, a different name for Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic name of Peter. Peter means rock. Cephas means rock. It's, uh, uh, Peter is the Greek name. Cephas is the Aramaic name. And we don't know why there's a group there. Why is there a contingent who is associated with Peter? Uh, we don't know if Peter personally visited Corinth or maybe some Christians who had benefited from Peter's work moved to settle in Corinth and claimed to teach what Peter taught. But somehow Peter's influence was strong enough that there was a party devoted to him as well. And then there was a fourth group who claimed to be the followers of Jesus. Well, everybody else is just following these human leaders, right? We, we're simply following Jesus, but these aren't any better off. They're just as divisive as the other. They're not somehow more spiritual to to draw themselves into the Jesus camp. How often have you been in a discussion with, with someone and uh, they shut down all the dialogue by saying, well, I'm just going to believe what the Bible says and you believe whatever you want to believe, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's like the final argument, right? Uh, you, you see, you know, you're just shutting down discussion because actually we're both trying to understand the Bible, right? I mean, that's what we're after here. We're both trying to understand the Bible. That's not in question. What's in question is that you and I have very different definitions and interpretations of the same text. Uh, so the ones here who claim Jesus don't, don't get off the hook. Um, the, these who claim Jesus, I imagine, were like modern-day fundamentalists. One of the reasons I left fundamentalism is... Uh, Well, one of the things I learned from fundamentalism is that the Bible is our authority. The Bible is infallible. It is inerrant. I love the scriptures because I grew up as a fundamentalist. The problem was, though, that I love the Bible and I'm confident in the Bible. I am not quite so confident in my... I am not infallible myself. I do not share the same authority as the scriptures. And the problem with fundamentalism is that my interpretation of the scriptures and the scriptures are one and the same in fundamentalism. There's no separation there, right? And so anytime that you question what a fundamentalist says or does or believes, you're questioning the scriptures. They, they don't see a separation there. What I, what I believe about the Bible and the Bible are the same thing, right? Where, where I want to say, no, I believe the Bible, and what I believe about the Bible has been wrong in the past, and if I'm shown today where I'm wrong, I'm going to reform and I'm going to change to conform to the scriptures. And so those who are just saying, well, we, we just follow Jesus are, are very similar in that mentality. It seems that, that they don't even recognize, they don't have the ability to see uh, their own uh, sectarian spirit. Well, what's happening is by dividing up into these camps, they're all behaving just like the world around them. The Greeks had their philosophers, and the Greeks had their orators who would draw big crowds wherever uh, wherever they went. Whenever a a big philosopher came to town to speak, they would make disciples for themselves. And then their various followers would fight amongst themselves over who their favorite philosopher was or who was the greatest. And the Jews did the same thing with their famous rabbis. They would play their rabbis off of each other, creating factions and sub-factions, arguing about who was the greatest this rabbi said this thing. Oh yes, but did not this rabbi say this other thing that completely contradicts what this rabbi said? And they go back and forth. They line up their texts like like toy soldiers and have them shoot at each other. They line up their rabbis, they line up their philosophers and they have them shoot at each other. And the church at Corinth is treating Paul and Apollos and Peter, and even Jesus as if they're nothing more than these rabbis or philosophers that they can just pit against each other. As if they weren't all saying the same thing. And here's the thing, as if Paul and Peter and Apollos and Jesus were actually opposed to each other. But we need to understand that the four teachers referred to here all shared precisely the same theology. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he told them about his trip to see the apostles in jerusalem which included peter and when paul went to jerusalem to see the apostles the original apostles He laid before them his teaching, his practice, his theology. He said, here's everything I'm teaching. Here's everything I believe so you can test my orthodoxy. Because there were those who were claiming that Paul was not preaching the gospel of Jesus. He was not preaching the same gospel as the rest of the apostles. So Paul went to be tested. He said, check me out. Correct me if necessary. The only response that they had toward him was this. They said, don't forget the poor. And Paul responds, you got it. I wasn't intending to forget the poor. I am eager to remember the poor. Otherwise, the apostles completely confirmed Paul in his teaching, in his practice. So, Peter, we understand, is preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached. Peter and Jesus are in agreement. Paul gets checked out by Peter. Peter and Paul are in agreement. Paul trained Apollos. Paul and Apollos are in agreement. So if you're keeping track and you wrote that all down on paper, you should see that Apollos is in full agreement with Jesus. There's nothing anywhere that indicates that any of these, Jesus, Peter, Paul, Apollos, had even a single difference in their theology but the divisive people in Corinth created imaginary divisions between Peter and Paul and Jesus and Apollos and set friends at odds differences of opinions are normal but they turned that difference they turned all those differences into division people of God you may have differences in fact because of the way God has created us we must have differences we are male and female we are tall and short. We are athletic and non-athletic. We, we are, are uh, uh, golfers and bakers and doctors and, and uh, uh, accountants. And we are, we are differently gifted. You may have differences. You may not be divisive about those differences. If we catch anything in this letter while we study it, we'll see from very early on that the church was anything but pure and perfect. Um, The the early church dealt with division from the very beginning. And so while we are grieved by the sectarian spirit in the church today, this is not a new problem. And the solution is the same one that Paul gave to this church. So let's run through what he commands them very quickly. First, he, he addresses them in very tender, affectionate terms. He says... I appeal to you. I I beg you, listen to me. Hear what I have to say. And he uses the word brothers. He uses the word brother more than any other word in this letter to the Corinthians. He uses this word 39 times, uh, twice as much as he uses any other word in the letter. He's pressing upon them their unity together and his unity with them and their unity with Christ. These challenges they are facing are brother, brother, brother. Problems. They are not problems between disassociated enemies. He is is at pains to show them that they are one church. You are still in communion. You are one loaf, whether or not you're acting like it presently, you are one loaf. And we need to get you to the point where you're displaying that unity openly. So you need to be restored to one another. And the way he says this and the way he encourages it is he begins by saying, Speak. The same thing. He wants them to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And they can't do that unless they're pursuing common truth together. It is good for you to study by yourself. It is good for you to read good books. And it is good for you to study the scriptures. That is very, very good. I also commend to you study in groups. Communal study. We have a women's group We have a men's group, we have a young people's group, we have a a homeschool group. There are different groups that meet for studying together, and communal study keeps us all on the same page, and it keeps us from getting weird ideas all by ourselves. We can get pretty weird pretty quick when we isolate ourselves. But communal study helps us to obey this, which is to speak the same thing. How do we speak the same thing when we're all over the place doing our own thing? We can't. We have to come together so that we can study the same thing, so that we can work out and and come together to agreements on things, and then then we can speak the same thing. He relates to them this, this message that he received from the household of Chloe, that there's quarreling among them. I don't know who Chloe is. We don't hear from Chloe again. We don't know anything about her. Perhaps she was an Ephesian woman, an Ephesian Christian with friends and family in Corinth. Because Paul is in Ephesus when he's writing this letter to Corinth. And so he hears through the channels that there's quarreling in the church in Corinth. Uh, The the word translated quarreling here is translated other places as sowing discord. There are church members here deliberately pitting people against each other. They are purposely causing division. In Proverbs 6, we get seven things that the Lord hates. What is the seventh? What is the seventh thing that the Lord hates? The one who sows discord among the brethren. Well, there we see, we've got that issue. There is someone who is sowing discord. At least one person, if not more than one person. And the result of this sowing discord, the the result of this instigation of disunity is that they've all divided up. They've all picked their favorite teachers and they're divided across those lines. Well, Paul isn't impressed at all. He... (laughs) He isn't interested in this kind of worldly competition, this popularity nonsense. And he, he, he's not flattered by those who picked him as their favorite. He doesn't turn to them and say, hey, by the way, those of you who say I'm a ball, you're actually the right ones. I'm, I'm thankful for you. Let me... Uh, Let me send you a prize. Let me send you a present. He he doesn't do that at all. He's not impressed with those who claim Jesus either. They're all participating in this partisan spirit just as much as the others. And and here's why it doesn't make sense, he says. And he launches into a number of questions. He says, you are Christ's body. Is Christ's body divided? I mean, does Jesus hate himself? Is Jesus at war with himself? How, How ridiculous is that? Furthermore, you who claim all these different allegiances, those of you who say, I am of Paul, was was I crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Why do you want to be identified with me? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? You say they've missed what's most important and the most vital identification that they can have is to be identified with Jesus. Being identified with Paul or Apollos or Peter alone will get them nowhere. Paul is disturbed by the fact that there are some people so confused about salvation and baptism that they're somehow understanding their relationship to Jesus as if it went through the person who baptized them. So he repels this idea that, that he's done anything to to bring these converts into a union with Jesus. Personally, he, he he says, "I'm just there to point you to Jesus. I'm not I'm not somehow your your uh, your your mediator. Jesus is your mediator." His frustration is right on the surface. In verse fourteen, he says, "This I'm going to read uh, these three verses again. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides." I do not know whether I baptized any other. That's how important it is to me because I don't remember who all I baptized there. I, I remember Crispus and guys, oh yeah, 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 the household of Stephanas too. I don't know who I baptized for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, Let the, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. That, that last half of that sentence uh, is the segue into the next section. We're going we're gonna to pick up on that next week. But by saying... You know what? I don't remember who I baptized, and I wasn't sent to baptize. Paul isn't minimizing the importance of baptism, but he is hoping to reduce in their minds the importance of who does it. You are baptized by the church, and it isn't any more special if this guy does it or that guy does it. Uh, Your baptism isn't more or less legitimate uh, depending on who in the church does it, which elder, which pastor. It is evident. That, that all kinds of extra unhelpful emphases had been introduced into their understanding of baptism, Corinth had developed these, this odd, odd understanding of baptism for some reason, where it was is some way more special because of who did it. And we still we still have this. We, we get these odd practices that, that just kind of come up and get attached to the sacraments. Um, and, and they, they mess with the, with, the, with the practice of baptism and with the Lord's Supper, and we, we have all these extra unhelpful emphases that get in, introduced here, that, that, that get attached, and they become more important than the sacrament itself. The, and I'm speaking about the church. The church is always doing things to make the sacraments more special, more meaningful, because we really don't believe that a mouthful of bread and a sip of wine is communion with Jesus. I mean, we don't think that way. We can't think that nah, a bite of bread, a sip of wine, we're eating with Jesus and that's what we, that's what we need. Now we've gotta got do something to make it more meaningful, either, either dip it or concentrate on it really, really hard or preach a heavy warning sermon every time we do it. So we, we don't want that sermon every week, so maybe we'll do it every six weeks or every two months or, or whenever. Uh, when Jesus just says, do it, he says, do this, do it. And and we've got to add all kinds of extra things to make it more special. We really don't believe that water applied in the name of the Trinity by the authority of the church really does what God says it does. We don't believe that. There, there's this impulse and there's this temptation to do other things to make it more special. Let me give you one silly example. Several years ago, a young family member Uh, came to my dad and asked to be baptized. My dad, uh, many of you know, is an independent Baptist pastor. And uh, a young family member came to my dad and he asked my father to baptize him, except he asked my dad to baptize him in a river so he could be baptized just like Jesus was. And my dad asked me what I thought of that. And I said, well, as long as he's baptized with water, he's baptized like Jesus was. More importantly, what are you saying about everybody else's baptism? If you make this big party and you all go down to the river, when you've got a functional baptistry in the church, but you do this special thing and you baptize this young man in a river, is everybody else's baptism somehow less special because they, quote, weren't baptized like Jesus was baptized? What are you saying? What, what kinds of things are you introducing now into your theology of baptism because you're trying to make it more special? Is, is everyone else's baptism less meaningful? And that's just one example. That's just the kind of silliness that really was going on in Corinth among immature believers They're introducing all these other things. And Paul says, he he attempts to set him straight on this with the last verse in this section. He says, Jesus didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Just as Jesus had delegated the performance of baptism to the apostles, it appears Paul had done the same. And he's not implying that baptism isn't important or that it's peripheral, not at all. He's not saying, well, just as long as you have the gospel, it's fine no but he's making an important distinction between his role and duties as an apostle and the church's everyday sacramental and liturgical function paul came to the city to drop the bombshell of the gospel on the synagogue to call the lord's appointed people out of darkness into the light and then to go on to the next city the church was then going to have to continue faithfully baptizing converts and serving communion and teaching and leading in prayer and and leading in song and and practicing church discipline and go about all the ordinary duties of life. Live in the city, work, uh, uh, eat, educate your kids, do what you have to do. Paul didn't have those same duties. So here he's highlighting the extraordinary and special nature of his itinerant apostolic ministry. He comes to the city, he stirs them up by the gospel, but now they're going to have to settle down to life. They're going to have to move on and they're going to have to encourage the pastors and teachers and elders who have been called to be there now without hanging on to these divisive allegiances to men who are never going to come back and be their pastor. Paul is never going to come back and be their pastor again. He's asked Apollos to go back. Apollos is not going back. By the way, how how would you like to be the current pastor or the current elders or the families of the current elders in this church, the wives of these elders, the wives of this pastor in a church that was perpetually discontent with the present and pining for the days when Paul was there or pining for the days when Apollos was there, and they keep bringing up the past in the midst of all this turmoil and all this disorder that the church was in? Sure things were different when Paul was here. Sure they were. Paul's not here now. And, and instead of vindicating them, and Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't say, you know what? Yeah, things were a whole lot better when I was there. Um, and things would be better if I were still there now. Paul doesn't say that. He says, you who are talking this way are part of the problem, not the solution. And it's such a problem that I'm going to address you first. Yeah, I know there's a guy who's sleeping with his, mother's, his, his father's wife. I'm not going to even talk about him yet because i got to talk to you first. You who are sowing discord among the brethren. There is a priority on unity. So what can we take away today? What, what, do, we, what do we take from this? Well, brothers and sisters, we have to recognize our inclination toward divisiveness. We have a tendency to elevate differences into division. We just have this tendency. And we have to remember, who wants us divided? Who is really interested in us being divided and at each other's throats? Well, Satan, right? Satan introduced division into the garden. Satan introduced division between Adam and his wife, between Adam and creation, between Adam and God, between Adam and his self. Satan introduced all that division. Satan likes to keep us ingrown and impotent. So he wants us drawing up battle lines against each other. What that means is that you and I have to recognize this and actively combat it. We must avoid the person who tries to draw us into foolish arguments. Romans 16 says, mark the divisive man and avoid him. Reject the accuser. Don't receive accusations. Instead, protect each other's reputations. Defend the body of Christ against the slanderous person and the accuser. And so that means that I have to determine for myself, and you must for yourself, determine that I'm not going to escalate difference into division. I'm not going to be a fundamentalist who doesn't understand the distinction between the Bible and what I believe about the Bible, I see those are two different things, the Bible and what I believe about the Bible, I I see that. And so with that, I'm going to pursue agreement and peace. If I am not actively pursuing agreement and peace, then gravity is going to win and drag us into unhappy conflict and division. And this requires us to learn how to listen to each other and be patient with each other in our own walk, in our own lives, in our own struggles and fears and anxieties and sin that we're putting up with and wrestling with. And not, I'm not saying sin we're putting up with. I'm saying sin that we're struggling through and and working at defeating. What did Solomon ask God for? I, I know every young person would say Solomon asked God for wisdom, right? Solomon asked God for wisdom. That's true. But what was Solomon's specific request? What did What did Solomon say? He says to God, therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. The word wisdom is not in there, though it's implied. The word wisdom is not in there. He says, give to your servant an understanding heart. The word understanding is a form of the word hearken. It's the word hear. It's the word listen. Now Solomon prayed for wisdom, but what precisely did he ask for? What exactly did he ask for? He asked for a listening heart. A prideful heart that exalts itself foments division. Division which saps the power and effectiveness and potency of the church. Division demoralizes. A listening heart seeks to follow the prince of peace actively. A a, a listening heart deliberately pursues peace. And so people of God reject divisiveness reject the reviler, reject the contentious one. Pray for an understanding, listening heart and manifest the unity of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would correct all of us in our uh, divisive impulses to elevate our preferences, opinions, and differences to division. Correct us by your Holy Spirit Restrain us from doing this, and instead, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would indeed give us understanding hearts, listening hearts, to grow in unity so that indeed we may speak the same thing. Father, encourage us to study and grow together, to knit our lives together as brothers and sisters so that we can manifest to the world a unity that they don't have a unity that is only found in the body of Christ. Father, strengthen us in all these ways, we pray. Amen.